This episode of Fix Me a Drink is brought to you by Wilderness Trail. You're listening to Fix Me a Drink, a Flaviar podcast. Welcome to another edition of Fix Me a Drink. I'm Noah Rothbaum. Joining me as always is my colleague and co-host, David Wondrich. How are you, Dave? I'm doing just great. Yourself? I am looking forward to today's episode with Dr. Pat Heist, uh, co-founder of Wilderness Trail out in Danville, Kentucky. He is really a wealth of distilling knowledge uh, and, and microbiology yep. and chemistry, all things that I was not very good at in high school or college. And, you but, know, he's, um, he's a good talker when it comes to those things. I wish he had been my yeah, right? teacher or professor of chemistry. I would have done a lot better. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. Looking looking at through the lens of bourbon and rye and American whiskey mm-hmm. at, at things like on the molecular level and the chemical reaction level was certainly a lot more interesting than whatever I remember from. I remember mitosis and meiosis, but I can't remember which is which. So that tells you where I stopped. (laughs) We we should have asked Dr. Pat. Um, We'll spare him. We'll spare him. And uh, as we sip on some of Wilderness Trails whiskeys, we'll uh, get him on the line. Welcome, Pat. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hi, Pat. This is uh, quite an auspicious occasion, right? Wilderness Trail, the distillery that you co-founded, turned 10 years old, right? Recently, right? I mean, it's uh, the anniversary is... Well, there's several anniversaries. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's the anniversary of when we incorporated Wilderness mm-hmm. Trail. Uh, there's the anniversary. I mean, the what's coming up now or just actually is happening now is our 10-year anniversary, the 10-year anniversary of the first barrels that we ever oh, made. There you go barrels of whiskey yeah so we we actually started producing uh you know 10 years ago several months ago in terms of you know we when we started wilderness trail we made vodka we made rum Mm -hmm. we started laying down uh bourbon and rye whiskey so this is you know uh actually october 31st is when we laid down our first first ever barrel that's that's a good anniversary to celebrate yeah sam and if i'm not mistaken and if the rumors are true you like my co-host here, Dave. You are both former musicians, right? My uh, business partner Shane, he is a guitar player, mm-hmm. and I am a lead singer, or at least he thought I was. <laughs> and we met. We met actually through a, a. We had a mutual friend who was a drummer, and this drummer guy just kept telling. I've never really had played in the organized band before, and he kept telling me about this guy Shane Baker. Hey, man, he plays guitar. And better yet, he's got a house we could practice in. That's the most you know, important so thing. Up and, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we met up and we started jamming out a little bit. And then then we put a band together with some other friends of ours. Uh, I was still a graduate student. Shane, he uh, he got a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Kentucky. So he was already out working. We, uh, you know, we kept in touch and I graduated, got my PhD in plant pathology, my, my bachelor's degrees in microbiology. So microbiology, biochemistry is my thing. And we played in rock band for uh, several years. I went on to be, become a medical microbiology professor at a medical school in Eastern Kentucky. And we were jamming out in Danville where the distillery, the end of the band, uh, at least 
while there. Yeah, so. I, I played in bands for 10 years, but I quit to go to grad school because uh, I was I, I kind of realized I wasn't getting anywhere with it. And uh, I thought, uh, let me actually focus on something else. But uh, it was fun to play. I was a bass player. Okay. Nice. I feel a little bit left out of the club today. I mean, Dave, (laughs) you you and Pat both have beards. You both have PhDs. You both were professors. Uh, You both played in bands for a decade. I I feel like perhaps there there should be a Dave clip on a fake beard. I I should have grown it out like for (laughs) this, but I feel like a a Dr. Pat and Dr. Dave, like, you know, there should be some kind of product or show uh, of of the two of you. But I digress. I digress. What inspired you to make the jump from from teaching and to making whiskey? Well, you know, again, my passion personally has always been microbiology, biochemistry. And so while I was a professor at the medical school, I've also been an entrepreneur. And Shane, he's the same way. We always, you know, talk about different business ideas. He actually went from big companies over to venture capital. Hmm. So he had a lot of experience um, with operations of businesses and if you're purchasing a distressed business, how do you go in and reorganize it and get it back in good shape again, flip it type of stuff? Distressed that, yeah. So he had a lot of business experience and uh, engineering experience. Uh, my passion is microbiology, biochemistry. And uh, we just kind of came together. Now, I was, when I was a professor, this is in eastern Kentucky. So this is where the Hatfields and the McCoys are from. There's a lot of moonshine going on over there. I mean, literally. Allegedly, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, allegedly. So, you know, it just starts to get you thinking about things. And, and it's sort of interesting. And actually, uh, you know, moonshining, the whole folklore of it and everything over there. And it doesn't take me long to get involved with the good old boy network, no matter where I move. So little by little, I started meeting people who were making moonshine and that stuff. And actually, that's kind of when the Moonshiners came on, the show on oh, Discovery yeah. Channel. Yeah. And, um, you know, personally, I just kind of thought, you know, how can I get into that industry? And very quickly, well, hell, yeast is what makes the alcohol, and that's microorganisms. So there's my end. And so I started consulting for companies that sold yeast and fermentation products to distilleries and breweries. And then very quickly realized that, you know, hey, I can I can do this on my own. And that's when I got back together with Shane. It's like, hey, man, let's start a fermentation company that supplies yeast and, mm. and fermentation products, enzymes, nutrient mm-hmm. supplements. You know, depending on what you're fermenting, there's a lot of different things that you got to add into there to get it to go right. And so we started Firm Solutions back in 2006. And uh, and which is worst time in the history of mankind to start a business because right. 2007 is when the housing crash and all that stuff. But man, we we shot right out of it like Luke Skywalker shooting out. Well, of the people were starting a, a lot of distilleries then, you know. <laughs> well, and something else happened right around then. The federal government uh, released or instated what's called the Renewable Fuels Standard. And renewable fuel standard mandated that by 2012, and this is six years after the after we start our business, by 2012 there would be 12 billion gallons of fuel alcohol produced in the United States each year. And fuel alcohol is made just like whiskey is made. 
dip or, or vodka. I, I've drunk a, a, a lot of bottles that have convinced me of that fact. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So when I start working in the fuel ethanol industry, which again, if you're selling yeast, you want to go to the customers that's got the biggest firm. Absolutely. You know, if you go to the biggest distillery in the state of Kentucky, the fermenters are like 150,000 gallons. Wow. Wilderness Trail, our biggest fermenter is 20,000 gallons. Still a big-ass fermenter. That's a, big, that's a big fermenter, yeah. Yeah. Now, fuel alcohol fermenters, the average size one is in the 800,000 gallons. <laughs> I've seen them as big as 1.2 million Oh, my gallons. God. So here we were entering an industry where the federal government was saying, hey, within six years, instead of 25 factories, there needs to be 225. And so there was just a land grab of business. You know, we got on, we got a bunch of business right off the bat. So, man, we just took off, you know. And then little by little start getting into distilled spirits. You know, bourbon, scotch, Irish whiskeys, Canadian blended whiskeys, all kinds of different. Uh, nowadays, we've got hard seltzer. You know, there's all kinds of different. different. Little by little, we started getting more into potable alcohol. And one thing about being a yeast supplier is the yeast gets the blame for every problem that a distillery or a brewery has. So a typical phone call from our client to us is, hey, man, your damn yeast isn't working. I mean, that's the part that nobody understands. It's the secret to whiskey. Yeah. People aren't microbiologists. And so if your fermenter is not coming out right, it's like something has plagued my factory here yeah. and I can't figure it out. And it's like, oh, you just need to do a better job of cleaning in between. Right fermenters or that pump needs to be taken apart and cleaned right, really well. Right. So something is being left behind. So throughout the process of the last 20 years of getting the blame for pro every problem that over a thousand distilleries <laughs> and breweries have had, we've learned to say that we've learned a lot in this business is an understatement of the century. So not only have we gone in and solved issues at hundreds and hundreds of breweries and distilleries, including most all the famous bourbon distilleries in the state of Kentucky, we've had access into those places of not the tour that everybody gets, but, hey, man, we got a problem here. You can go down in the dungeon of this place and look underneath the tanks if you need to. So we learned a hell of a lot about what causes problems at distilleries and breweries. And then... Ten years later, that's when we realized we ought to have a distillery. So if, assuming something goes wrong at Wilderness Trail, who do you blame? We don't ever have problems at Wilderness <laughs> Trail because everybody else has already showed us every problem right. that can happen, and we've solved it. So we built our distillery issue-free. I love it. Dave and I, I think, often talk about you know these areas that often get overlooked in terms of making whiskey or spirits and fermentation, microbiology. I mean, these no offense, Pat, not the sexiest part of our business, but I would argue probably the most essential part yeah. and the one that is the most misunderstood. And generally, most people try to sprint through as quickly as possible as a means to an end. But like really, a lot of the flavor and the mouthfeel is developed in the fermenter. I mean, it's, it's the oh, yeast. Yeah. I mean, it's so much of what is in the finished product get started, you know, with the yeast and the fermentation. Absolutely. And, and again, how do you know what you know about whiskey? A lot right. of times you're listening to the brand ambassadors or the tour guides or whatever. And, you know, looking across this industry, 
a lot of the people who are on the forefront of purveying the information are volunteers in a lot of cases, you know, and, and the people who really know it, first of all, they're few and far between. Um, I've never met anybody that even comes within 99% of, of coming close to me and Shane in terms of our knowledge. I mean, Shane, he's the best process guy in the world for alcohol facilities. He just is. I'm a scientist. I speak the truth. Uh, so that's scientific fact. Uh, my knowledge in the microbiology, the biochemistry, you know, we talk about the yeast and the microbiology, but we also want to consider the conversion of starch into fermentable sugars. I mean, there's a whole biochemical process that occurs in that mashing step that really lends a lot to the mouthfeel. You know, you mentioned that that the bourbon that, that you drank from our bottles has a certain uh, texture yeah, to it's it. Got, it's got a richness that you don't often find, and that's, uh, I think, one of the, the most elusive things to get in a whiskey when you when you get that thick, chewy texture on. And I, I think it can't be beat. I mean, for me, that's the mark of a great whiskey is that it's not thin. It's it's it's, it, you know, I mean, you think of the really good scotch whiskeys. Those are pretty chewy and the really good American whiskeys are pretty chewy. And uh, but they're it's hard to get. And I'm curious as to as to, uh, you know, where where you believe it comes from. We have theories, but we want to know the truth. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that are very different about the way we do things. One of the biggest things, which is right on our bottles, is that we do a sweet mash process within a sour mash. And to understand what sweet mash is, you really have to understand what sour mash is. And a lot of people, I know what sour mash is, and it's like, well, let me tell you again what it is, and maybe you'll have a real... So let's set the record straight here. So sour mash is very simply, whenever you're blending the milled grains with the hot water in the mashing process, you're displacing about 20 to, I've seen up to 50%, but most often you'll see 20 to 30% of your mashing water replaced with liquid that has been filtered from a previous distillation. So whenever you distill the alcohol off of fermented beer, the alcohol comes off all the leftover water in the grain that's, that comes out of the still. That's called stillage. You take a little bit of solids out of that and the liquid left over, that's the liquid that I'm talking about. It's recycled to the front to remake the mash. That's called sour mash. And the reason it's called sour mash is because the act of adding that fat set or that, that stillage, that acidifies the mash. Okay, it makes it lower pH. If you taste it, it tastes acidic. Sweet mash, very simply, is we're adding all of our grains to fresh water each time. No back set. And, and when you talk to people, why? I mean, every other brand in the entire bourbon industry does sour mash. You know, at least it's on the bourbon trail. Yeah, I'd say 99%. You know, it's, it's funny, before Prohibition, uh, the best rise, the Eastern style of rise, were all sweet mash or water fill, as they called it, and the 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 bourbons were all sour mash, and they and those people would not change. You know, they they really were were very strong on on that distinction. Like the the Pennsylvania rise, the Maryland rise were all sweet mash, and I, I wonder, you know, if there's a special affinity that sweet mash has for rye. 
Well, when you look historically at, you know, the very crudeness of the process, you know, and, and even going all the way back to when great grandpa was distilling and fermenting in the woods, you know, there is a, a lack in a lot of cases of cleaning and sanitation. I mean, you just, Start packing a mop with you to the woods. You know? <laughs> uh, in, in a lot of cases, maybe you weren't even packing a thermometer, and that's why such high temperatures. Because back in the old days, you might have been using boiling as an indicator of temperature. You know, and yeah. then somebody finally right. did the rest. Like, man, we got to write this shit down. Then all of a sudden, you see, oh, we're at two fifteen. But that's another thing about wilderness trail. You know, we look at every step of the process, and we really ask ourselves, what are we trying to accomplish here? So in the mashing process, one of the goals there is to convert starch into fermentable sugars. All that enzymatic process, and you need that high heat to do that. But one thing that we do quite a bit differently is that that is one of the most energy-intensive steps of the entire process. So when you look at what are other distilleries doing, and of course, when we start wilderness, we're just not trying to recreate the wheel. So we say, what are all of our customers doing? They're cooking it between 211 to 215, almost every one of them in their mashing process. Well, we look at that and we say, well, but cornstarch gelatinizes it between 175 to 185. So why do we want to cook at 211? Think about the energy, additional energy that we would have to take to get to get from 185 to 211 almost takes more energy than it does to get from zero to 185. Not to mention the amount of time that it adds to your process to get it up there. Now, once it's up there, I got to crash cool that. So I've got a whole bunch of cooling expense coming in right behind that. And so we're like, okay, if corn starts gelatinize at 185, why in the hell do I want to cook one degree above that? So we cook at 185. It's just more of a, a easier, it's more a softer cook. So that could be another thing, or just like you know, taking a tea bag and jamming it up and down in boiling water, you're beating the hell out of all those tannins and different things, you know. So there is something to be said for we got the sweet mash process, we've got the softer introduction. We actually use an infusion mashing process, so we're more softly introducing those grains. We don't crash cool with our cooling capacity. We actually crash cool. We reserve water from our cook that we keep cool and we actually cool our mash with water right. that we never paid a dime to heat. So there's a lot of things that we do. Uh, so we're talking flavor and texture here, but on the other side of the equation is sustainability, energy savings, utilities. So I think it's important to also point out the importance of those types of factors yeah. because, you know, sustainability these days is becoming a hotbed topic. And, and again, you know, we don't get our grains from Germany. Some places are like, we get our rye from Germany. It's like, hey, man, that's great for you guys. But is that sustainable? You know, and the same for new producers that are using all these different types of grains, older yeah. varieties of grains that, you know, these days you get 200 bushels an acre out of good corn. Right. You might get 40 bushels an right. acre out of some heirloom variety in a good season. You know, so you got to be careful. Sustainability is something else we want. So, so where are you getting your rye from if you're not getting it from, from Europe? or We get it from Kentucky. And we're one of the only distilleries in Kentucky that gets our rye from Kentucky. Now, we started getting all of our rye from Kentucky. Nowadays, there is very possibly some rye, maybe even a, a solid, you know, 
10, 15, 20% that's coming from outside of Kentucky, but we're still trying to get it from as close as possible. Yeah, Kentucky's not a famous dry state, you know, for growing. Capacity's got to be somewhat limited there, I would imagine. Yeah, variety, there are varieties that grow well here, and that's where my agricultural background and the connections back to the University of Kentucky kind of played in handy, working with our local extension agents, helping our farmers to pick varieties. Like we grow a variety called heritage rye that actually grows quite well here in Kentucky. No, that's interesting. So, you know, Kentucky is little by little nowadays becoming a rye growing state. Do you think something happens to like the actual structure of the starch and the sugar if you mash at such a high, you know, temperature? Well, again, you have more in there than just starch. Right. So we're looking to convert starch into fermentable sugars right. in the mashing process. But you also have to consider there are proteins in there, right. especially in the rye and in the barley and in the wheat. And those proteins, much like starch, are basically, you know, polymers of amino acids. And so if you overcook protein, you break down those amino acids, and some of those amino acids can then be used by the yeast as a nitrogen right. source in fermentation, which kind of sounds good on the onset. But whenever you consider that some of those amino acids can then be precursors for, for carcinogenic compounds like ethyl carbamate, which is regulated in whiskey going to Europe. This is what I'm always telling Dave. I'm like, you think nitrogen's your friend, and it's not. Yeah, I, I got to get a T-shirt that says "Watch out for that nitrogen." That's right. So there are those kind of considerations, but you know, we don't really say that. Hey, the way we do it is better than the way that they do. Now we can say the way we do it saves us a shitload of money right. compared to the way they do it, and that's a better thing. But we're never going to say that sweet mash is better than sour mash. I mean, my cabinet's got just as much sour mash as it does. Uh, well, it's actually got more sweet mash because most of my bottles are wilderness. But we still drink right. a lot of other whiskeys. Yeah. And we're not trying to say that our process is better. It's just another way of doing mm -hmm. it. And if that way of doing it is more sustainable, saves you money, and gives you that great texture that you want in a four and a half to five-year-old product, then, hey, man, that's good. Where do you stand on uh, barrel entry proof, if I can ask? So we go in at lower proof. The highest allowable by law is 125. We go in at 110. You passed our test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Answered the way that we wanted nice. to. We're, we're big fans of the lower, the lower entry proofs. I think that was maybe the worst decision that the bourbon industry made was to go up to 125. Strictly a money move. Yeah, I, I, I was fortunate to uh, taste at a at a distillery recently in Kentucky the same whiskey that they put in barrel at 50 percent and you know at, at 100 proof and at 125 and aged for the same length of time. And the distance the difference was absolutely remarkable in terms of texture more than flavor. But it's like one was stuck in your mouth and the other was, was pretty thin. It was it was it was fascinating. And what we're talking about for those listeners who do not read arcane uh, tax code changes, basically the barrel injury proof, like after the spirit comes off the still before it, well, it's still spirit before it goes into the barrel. Like, obviously, it comes off the still. Uh, what? About 137 in our case. Let's say 137, okay. And then, so then you're going to put it into the barrel, but you have to decide essentially how high of a proof you want it to go into the barrel, right, where it ages. The higher the proof, ultimately, 
you know, the fewer barrels you need to buy, the fewer warehouses you need to build, the more water you'll add down the road, the more profits you'll get. The lower the barrel entry proof, the more barrels you need, the more warehouses you need, the fewer bottles you get down the road because you're yeah, adding. Because you're essentially aging extra water. Exactly. However, if you go to cognac, for instance, when they reduce their cognac from still proof to 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 drinking, you know, to barrel proof and to drinking proof, they add aged water to it. Yeah. Which and those people have hundreds of years yeah. of experience in aging and blending fine spirits, and they know how to get a good texture. And I think that's you know th that's what you're missing. You're taking out that water and you're putting back in just plain water. Yeah not something that's had time to to react and and pull out compounds from the wood etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh it's uh, it's always a, it's a trade off there's a several things here relative to the barrel that I think are important first of all what are we doing in that barrel one of the main things that we're doing is we're extracting chemicals from that charred wood and some of those chemicals are water-soluble. Some of those chemicals are alcohol-soluble. So having the right balance of water and alcohol is important for getting the right amount of extraction of those chemicals. There's a lot of other things going on as well. Chemical reactions are occurring. Evaporative loss is occurring. There's a lot of things going on. Now, another thing to consider relative to Wilderness Trail, you know, Shane and I, when we started Wilderness, we said, we're going to be one of those, we're going to be a rare deal here. We're not going to source anything and we're not going to release a product till it's at least be able to call bottling. So four bottle, years old. Which means minimum of four years. So now we didn't want to wait six or eight years, which would, I mean, our, our decision to wait four years was already a detriment. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough decision to make. I mean, you have the fermentation, your main, your core business yeah, yeah. is still going. So that's right. But, you know, at the end of your life, you want to accumulate some cash. When I'm a do the math here, when I'm 100, I'm going to have 35 barrel warehouses and absolutely no right. cash and a billion dollars worth. I of think that's what we I call mean, warehouse poor. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is. Exactly. So anyway, when we started Wilderness, we said we're not going to release till it's a bottle and bond. But knowing from, you know, a lot of the experience that we have is that four-year whiskey doesn't really taste, I mean, it still needs Sometimes a little more time. So what yeah. can we do here to pull out all the stops to make sure that at that, and we waited, I think our first bottle and bond release was more of like five, five and a half years. Well, you need we to have wait. some in the pipeline before you, you know, you can't just say, all right, here's our bottles. <laughs> now they're all out. And you only wait a few more days for another barrel yeah, to turn yeah, four yeah. years old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we kind of waded into it a little bit. A couple things that we did that made our stuff taste real good at four years. One was going in at the lower barrel entry proof. Number two, the type of barrels that we use. We use, a lot of people don't talk about, they talk about the char, they talk about where the barrel came from, but they, they talk about whether or not they're toasted. We don't do toasted barrels. But our barrels are called Cooper Select Barrels. They're from Independent Stave Company. And those barrels are special because the wood is air-dried for 18 to 24 months versus three to six months. And the barrel manufacturers, that process of seasoning that those staves prior to construction of the barrel, they refer to that process as deacidification. They're actually volatilizing tannic acid. 
which tannic acid is one of the things that makes four-year-old taste like it needs to go a couple The wood is less tannic the longer. And they they leave it outside so the rain gets to it and washes some of that stuff If you ever visit one of the big big barrel companies, most of the yard outside is is just palletized. They're beautiful. They look like an Andy Goldsworthy sculpture, all these towers of uh, aging staves and wood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if any of the listeners has an extra 10 minutes of time, you can put Pat Heist TED Talk in a Google search and you can watch my TED Talk. It's called How Climate Change Can Affect Bourbon Production. And it's got a, it's very focused on a lot of the concepts relative to the barrel. You raised many good points. You know, Dave and I have discussed this at, at quite length, but sometimes you'll you'll have a distillery where you taste you know, what we'd call the white dog or what they call in Scotland, the creature, the creature, right, right off the still. And it tastes it's delicious, right? And it's impressive. Mm-hmm. It goes in the barrel. It's a full-size barrel. Four or five years later, it comes out of the barrel and it tastes not great. And it's weird and it has all types of funky stuff in it suddenly. So it's like, where did it come from? Like, I mean, sure, it could develop in the distillate, right? It could develop in the spirit. But what people often don't remember is that the quality of the barrel, right? And when we talk about the quality of the barrel, you know, obviously most people in America use, you know, Quercus Alba, right? Latin did come into this. Nice nomenclature. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, American white oak, right? So it should all be the same, right? Okay, well, what's the difference? And I think often how long the wood has dried. Yeah. Again, nobody talks about it. And but it it's incredibly important, and the I would argue that some of the the whiskeys that taste the best to me are the ones where they put in the time to really air dry the state where they've had the they've had the resources to do that right because it's more expensive, it takes more time, you know you get fewer barrels, it's harder to source, you know so all of these things, if you have the luxury to do it as a brand, it often translates into more flavor, better flavor well, you know for some people, it's a luxury. That they can forego, and for other people, that's a bare that's a bare necessity. Because I'm not going to make whiskey if I can't do it this way. Yeah, you know, it's not that's not negotiable. Well, something else I'll tell you, just because I can tell you're interested in the topic, and this is something else that kind of like the uh, seasoning of the staves that people don't really consider is that through our research, looking at what happens to the wood over time, mm-hmm. you know when drill a hole through that barrel from the inside out and take a core sample, how does the structure of that wood change year one, year two, all the way up to 10, 20 years? And one thing that we see occurring, and this is with bourbon that goes into new charred oak barrels, is right at that four to five year mark, we look at the structure of the wood, specifically the hemicellulose and the cellulose, which are large polymers of glucose, Mm -hmm. sugars. We see start seeing those sugar backbones falling out of those structures. And where did it go? It's measurable, it's soluble in the whiskey. So right at that four to five year mark with new charred oak barrels, you start getting a significant amount of release of sugar from the wood. So that's something else that occurs that the scotch producers are going to get the full benefit of, of because once their whiskey goes into there, that process has already started. Right, right. Depend on how much of that sugar has fallen out. But over time, you've got a lot of, t- I mean, that wood has to fall. Yeah, apart. but when that sugar is gone, it's gone. So by the time you're doing the third refill, you're not getting much benefit from it. Well, and the sugar is there so long as there's wood right. there. 
but, but you know, so the layers know, are the barrel's probably going to start leaking before it stops giving up sugar. But but that's just something to consider. And of course, the more sugar that comes out of it, the harder to access the remaining sugar is, and there's all that to it. Um, but you know, you look at you know the the practice of filling barrels, keeping barrels full. You know that alcohol acting on that wood versus you know we let our barrels just you know kind of evaporate over time. There's a heck of a lot of dynamics around all those factors as well. I mean, it's such a complicated process, you know, so misunderstood and yeah. and or just not not particularly well studied. Uh, you know, for you, what do you think is the optimal age when the sugars start to leave the barrel like is it like four to six four to eight if dave and i were going to make our own whiskey like how long would you know to get the the maximum benefit of the sugars six years like seven years man i i'm a big fan of six to eight year bourbon now you never like with us you know people are like what you know what what are you expecting out of your 12 year old it's like you don't really know i mean Nobody's ever aged on our site. Nobody's ever made it like we make it. In the history of mankind, not too many people have even used a more extended air-dried barrel. I mean, when Dave and I started writing and and about whiskey and, and cocktails and spirits almost 25 years ago, you asked the distillers what was the optimal age for American whiskey. Yeah. And they'd say six to eight years, right? I mean, what you're saying about the breakdown of the barrel, we might not have known, but people realized that something occurred in that time period that made the whiskey more flavorful, right? It made it... It becomes richer, you know? Right, but that's that's why. I mean, that's, you know, I, I often say the the what happens in the barrel is sort of a magical element, right? It's one of the, mm -hmm. the fourth ingredient, right? You know, in addition to water, grain, and yeast is the barrel, right? Which we don't talk about as an ingredient but it obviously is because it's adding all types of stuff researchers at independence they've said to me once we we test you know i guess with a gas chromatograph like 200 flavor compounds but there are thousands of flavor compounds that we don't test for right so all of these things where the barrel literally is deconstructing or releasing all types of things into the whiskey now i mean Thanks to you, Dr. Pat, and things like gas chromatographs, we have a better idea of why the whiskey in that magical six to eight year window it tastes so good. We're understanding now that it's like literally a chemical reaction that's occurring where it's not just that it has to age for six or eight yeah, years, it's which I think a lot of people reactions. Right. It that something is occurring. Yeah. It's not just that it it's not like it has to just sit in the barrel for some odd reason for six to eight. <laughs> like if you put it into a glass bottle for six or eight years, it would turn into, no, it's no. like there's some, all types of amazing reactions that are occurring immediately from the time you put it into literally until you remove it. And and some of those things we understand, some of them we don't. And some of us with PhDs understand it better than others, but like, um, <laughs> You know, I, I, it is fascinating though that there is actually justification. Yeah, I mean, for... I've all, I've always, from twenty five years of, of focused tasting of, uh, uh, of of American whiskey, I've always found that there's there are like two stages. First, that like three to four years is when it loses the raw grain taste and turns from grain distillate to whiskey. And when you taste it, you go, oh yeah, that's whiskey. You know, it's it doesn't taste 
like white dog and all that all that flavor is gone. But then that next one is definitely six to eight is is when suddenly it turns if if it's a if people are, did things right when it turns to like really good sipping whiskey. But uh, beyond that, <laughs> it, it kind of goes one way or another. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing that I can say, you know, we're kind of talking here about, you know, asking questions like, you know, what what's the best time to age? What's the best, you know, all these different questions. And whenever you answer any type of question like that, really, you got to look at what is the precedent? You know, what what is the data that we have to go by to answer that question? And and this is a hard business to do science in. You know, the academics that are trying to do it. I mean, you got the James Beam Institute at the University of Kentucky, which is going to be very helpful. I am a fellow of the James Beam Institute myself. So, yes. Yep. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor at the James Beam Institute. This. Look at this. I, and I think you're right that that as, as it gets up and running, we'll finally have a place to do some of this experimentation without the restrictions of. And hopefully it's not too sterile of an academic environment, because in my experience, you know, you do something on that type of a scale and it's so non-industrial that all the results can be excluded from man, you know, how we all. Yeah, you've got to use, you've got to include process for, for all of this stuff. <laughs> There's got to be like a practical way of doing it. That's right. Now, on the flip side of that, when independent stayed, you know, Andrew Webrink and those guys, you know, they rely on us a lot for experimentation because First of all, we're making a very um, consistent product going into the barrel. I mean, if you've got all kinds of inconsistencies of the whiskey going into the barrel and you're trying to address a component of the barrel, you're shit out of luck. I, I feel like Dave and I have just called you complaining about our fermentation and that's your answer to us. Like, <laughs> hey guys, like you yeah, need to yeah. be way more consistent here. Yeah. Like before you call yeah. back, like tighten it up and then call me. Bye. Yeah, you didn't do an experiment to address whether extra seasoning of the barrel helped. You experiment to address how does a contaminated fermenter do in various seasoned <laughs> barrels. <laughs> so, so, and then you look at how much, how many replicates does it take to make the experiment valid? You know, in a, in a laboratory, we can put samples in incubator that keeps everything and we can randomize it. But if you got barrels in a barrel warehouse, top floor, bottom floor, even side by side. So we've got to outrun the barrel to barrel variation yeah, before right. we even see any, before we're able to really. Yeah. You almost need to build up. special warehouses for testing, you know. Every barrel is different from, you know, those, those barrels aren't the same. Yeah. So, like, you know, when those guys come to us and then and then we're having to take time out of our production is, wait a second now. We're, we're barreling 220 barrels a day, but we've got six of these barrels that are going to be delivered on this day. we got to keep track of them, all that stuff. And then it's like, is that going to even do us any good? So that's the problem that we have is the, the lack of really good scientific design of experiments because we're talking about barrels that are worth $10,000 a piece. Oh, yeah, I'll just have 150 barrels in my experiment. Oh, there's $1.5 million right there, you know. And now I still don't have a good experiment. And guess what? After four years, they all taste like shit. That's the answer to your question. So congratulations. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> if you do the experiment right, you got to get things wrong sometimes. You got to, you know, you got to be able to falsify it. 
I was doing a talk a few weeks ago in, in Kentucky and somebody asked the question about, you know, aging techniques. And I said, look, it, it, it's possible that there is a difference, right? The way that, you know, a certain brand does things. Is that difference, though, perceptible? Like when you drink it, it might be testable in a gas chromatograph. It might be different. But in your glass, will you actually see a difference? Like, I don't know, right? I mean, it might be the difference may be so small. That and what happens when you add doing. a cube of ice? <laughs> well, right. Or, or or a big slug of cola, yeah, like, yeah. you know, or ginger ale. Yeah. Like, I mean, then it's forget it. But, you know, some of these things, I think you're right. It's like they will have an effect. But, like, is the effect great enough to offset the cost, the research, the time, the effort? you know, all of this stuff. And and sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And that's why I'm glad that you're doing it. And Dave and yeah. I don't have to. Well, judging, judging from the whiskey that that uh, that you make, you're focusing on the effects that you can perceive exactly. on the palate. So I think that's a win. Yeah. yeah, well, you control the things that you can. Yeah. And then over time, you do gain knowledge. You, you do, I mean, right. I, I'll tell you a great example. We, You know, the way that we procure barrels for our barrel pick program is that we look at our inventory and we say, hey, these 50 barrels are of the age to where they're at least qualified based on age. Mm -hmm. Right. So then we send that information with the barrel guys and they go out to the warehouse and they access those barrels and pull samples from those barrels. Then our barrel pick people taste them and they curate, okay, I want these 20 barrels out of that 50. And then the barrel warehousemen come back, those motherfuckers, every time that they pick the barrels, they pick the ones by the window, meaning we got to move 20 barrels out of the way to get those. So the people tasting those barrels had no idea that they were by the window, but out of 50, they picked the ones that were all by the window. And little things like that tell us, wow, the photons have an effect. On yeah, there. we better start putting more windows in. <laughs> but that type of science, though, you end up learning over time. Even though we're not purposely doing an experiment, we're making observations, which are the foundation for the scientific method. Absolutely. Dr. Pat, thank you so much for coming on our show. Uh, we definitely learned a lot. You, you've definitely given... Dave and I, uh, the scientific fact that we can use to support our arguments about the way that American whiskey shooting should not be made. So thank you for that. <laughs> I, I am indebted to you for that. So we may be calling for backup uh, from random events or talks or uh, <laughs> put you on speakerphone to explain why we're correct when I can't remember exactly the proteins and amino acid chain, but um, I will try to remember that. <laughs> Uh, but but thank you so much, and thank you for for, for the whiskey. Uh, we, we always love a guest who who brings something for us to drink. Exactly. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fix Me a Drink. Dave and I encourage you to always drink responsibly. Cheers. <laughs>